Welcome to Go Behind the Ballot, a podcast where two Texas moms go on an educational quest to demystify Texas politics. Join me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, as we deep dive into the most burning issues, hear stories from candidates, and offer hope in these challenging political times. Let's saddle up and go behind the ballot. Hey, everyone. I'm Claire Campos O'Neill. And I am Nicole Abshire. And we're super excited to have you here for our episode today. We spoke with Charlie Bonner, and he is a fascinating person. He is a youth rights voting advocate and a communication expert on all things voting and civic engagement. We wanted him to come on the show today and chat with us about this process called redistricting, which also ties into gerrymandering, which are both very, very confusing. But luckily, Charlie's a great communicator, and he helped walk us through these really complicated processes in a way that I hope is illuminating and helps you understand a little bit more about how it impacts your vote, because it does. And that's why it's important for us to pause and talk about the mechanics of how your district lines are drawn and who actually is your representative. Nicole, what is like still top of mind for you after our chat with Charlie? Well, I do want people to understand that maybe you will understand it first time through when you listen, but it is also possible that you might want to give it a second listen. He explains well. I mean, he is very easy to understand. And yet I think it's just a function of what redistricting and gerrymandering are that it just, for me, is going to require another listen to really wrap my mind around it all. But I do want to emphasize the importance of listening, no matter how many times, because we keep talking about these invisible systems and these mechanisms, the way all of this works, and just having a sense of it really does matter because I know that for me, it will remind me why my vote and getting out and voting in every election is so essential. Yes, that's very well said. It's just like another thing. It's like, ah, it's another mechanism making the system so complicated and hard. But at least we're having some clarity and shining some light on it so that we understand it a little bit better. And it makes more sense when you're like, why is my district so red or why is my district so blue? Like there's a reason for that. So hopefully by us having this talk, you'll understand it a little bit better and that can empower you to go vote more. And then also when this redistricting process comes around, have your voice heard if you have the time and you want to make that a priority of yours. So sit back, listen, let us know what you think. This is great information. It's a lot to digest, but like Nicole said, It might be one that you just listen to a few times. I know I'm going to listen to it probably three or four times, and I'll be a little bit smarter after each listen. So hope you enjoy it. All right. Well, hello, everyone. We're very excited for this conversation with Charlie Bonner. We have heard from many people that you're the person to talk to about redistricting. So we're so glad that you are able to chat with us and fill us in on what this seemingly complicated thing is. But we know that you're a great communicator, so you're going to help illuminate this topic. <laughs> Here's for hoping. We'll see how it goes. We'll report back at the end. If it exactly. We're going to get sense. somewhere. <laughs> yeah. So Charlie, when we get our conversations going, we always like to start with people's origin story and understand a little bit about them and where they come from and how they got into politics. So tell us, are you from Texas? Where did you grow up? Yeah, I was born in Arlington, Texas. My family has been here from the jump. I'm a seventh generation Texan something that's always been very important to our family. And even though we moved to Virginia when I was growing up, and so that's actually where I got my start in politics, was volunteering on the first Obama campaign in 2008. I was 12 years old. I had a really amazing civics teacher in middle school who encouraged me because she saw how much I loved the class, that if this is something that I was really interested in, that the only way to really learn it is to go and be in the room where the work is happening. And so I showed up with my mom and started making posters and I think work in the front desk at the office and then was shortly thereafter making phone calls and knocking on doors and asking people to really vote on my behalf as a young person who had a vested interest in this but couldn't cast a ballot myself. 
And so much of that time, really, I fell in love with that work and with the people. And because it was something so much bigger than myself, I think I was a young person that was really trying to find my place, was trying to find my passion in a, somewhere where I could fit in. And those campaign offices were full of people from every walk of life. I think particularly that first Obama campaign, there was such a special feeling there. There was some magic that was happening that there really was people from every aspect of life were there giving their time and their talents and doing whatever it was that they could, whether it was knocking on those doors and helping folks realize where their polling place was, whether it was just making food for the office, because that's what you could do, right? Or donating office supplies, right? People were coming together to make it work. And it changed my life to see that, to see people working together in that way who may have never known each other if not for that campaign office even though they were neighbors even though that we shared a city together we could come together and build something bigger than ourselves and so as a result i really stayed involved ever since and have been involved in campaigns and voting rights advocacy work ever since really under that same notion that the civics teacher who got me involved in politics helped me to find my voice and it changed my life to be able to have a purpose, to be able to see that helping people vote can unlock their power is what I've now committed my life to. In the same way that she changed my life, I hope that every person that we register, every person that we break down this wonky process for so they have a little bit more information, that there's real power in that. And that sort of power is not just connected to elections, right? That is a personal power. That's about how you feel about yourself and your community. And so that's really why I do this work. And I've stayed doing this since that young age. <laughs> I, know. I think you're a first, Charlie. I feel like the connective yeah. piece in our other interviews has been people who have had an issue that kind of animates them and gets them started. And it's typically mm-hmm. in adulthood. So that's really fascinating that even at your young age of 12, you were ignited in that way. And also, I just have to toss in sixth generation Texan over here. I was told I was seventh by my grandmother, but my mom and I actually traced it back. And it was like, well, it's actually six, but we never told her. We just let her Classic. believe <laughs> that it was seventh. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, should I believe any of the stories about Texas that my grandfather told us? I'm not sure. You just should. <laughs> you just should. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Texas storytelling needs no fact check, you know? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. History is a story we tell ourselves. <laughs> Whatever. Like, <laughs> That's so great. Well, I'm curious. So 12-year-old you is invigorated Mm -hmm. by your civics class. Was there something specific in that class that really lit you up that you recall? Like, wow, this is how we change the world. In part, just an incredible teacher, right? And I was lucky that I have one of those teachers that every student deserves, right? But far too many never have. That is somebody who could take something. Our civics, I don't even think we took civics for a full year, It was a like part-time class in a study hall that had too many people in the room. There were not enough seats for everybody. It was that sort of a situation. But you had a teacher who really knew that grounding our education in civics makes it where it's practical. It makes it where you can do something with that information that you're learning. And for me, it was, I think, more the idea of the whole thing. That once you really got into the mechanics of learning about civics, around learning about politics, that really is just everyday people who are showing up every day and trying to do right by their neighbors, right? Like that really is what politics as its core, and we make it so much more than it is in the dog fights and the polling and the parties and all these things. But at the end of it, it's just normal people like all of us who are showing up. And this country was built on the idea that everyday people, regardless of where you come from or how much money you make, could make a difference if they showed up. And I think as a person who was really trying to find their place and find their voice, that was life-changing for me, right? That this huge institution that we call government, that we call American politics, really just comes down to the everyday people who show up, I think, tore down a lot of barriers to engagement for me. And I think that is how I was able to really get involved. And I think that's really how I think about a lot of the work that we do still is about tearing down those information barriers as a first step to help people get involved. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. Yeah, because I think what we're trying to do in this podcast is help people reclaim that power and understand how democracy should work, but actually does work, which is why we're excited to talk about redistricting and gerrymandering, because it muddies the waters a lot in an unfortunate way. Totally. But before we get to that, 
just before we leave your childhood, we're curious, did you grow up with parents who were politically involved? Like when you said, hey, I want to go knock on doors for Obama, were they already like, great, we love Obama? Or were they like, oh, okay, yeah, that sounds interesting. My mom has always been a campaign volunteer type, has always been that person. I think when I showed up, she was like, okay, interesting. Like, this is a new turn for this. But it ended up being one of the great things that we did together for years and that we still do together, my mom and I, that we are a very good canvassing team, particularly. We are very efficient, having started from a young age before I could drive. So she would drive the car and I'd like run out of the car, like knock on the doors. And we still try to do that when we can over the years. But yeah, my family's influence on that over the years, I think as I got more involved, even more of my family got more involved. By the end of the Obama years, it felt like every Bonner was involved in some way and doing something that they could, whether it was my mom driving the car to the canvas, my dad entering data, talking to the voters, my brother joining a campaign, my sister. We're all trying to do something that we could. And I think it's a really important part of like who my family is. And for some reason, I think people think because I got involved in a really young age that like, they have some vision that my parents were like elected officials or something like that. Like that's how kids get involved in it, right? Like your parents run. And I, there was something I was like, my mom just was a person who liked knocking on doors, making phone calls, right? And like knew that that was like a place where she could make a difference. And I think that actually being the core of actually what we did as a family, like volunteer work, And doing the community building, I think, part of that is actually much more influential than like anything political, right? Mm. I like the idea, too, that you're pointing out that it is infectious. I'm using air quotes also in a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So you can feel it for people who are listening. (laughs) But if you're watching, you got to see it. But I like the idea of political activation being infectious because I'm seeing that right now happen in my family since I've started working on this podcast with Claire. My mom has become really activated too and is asking a lot of questions and I can just see things starting to bubble up. So I'm just kind of putting that out there to other people who are listening. It's a slippery slope, right? Get everybody involved. I think also there is something I've seen and I've seen it happen in so many people that when you get involved in this work, part of what happens too is you become a trusted source for your friends and your family on this sort of information that there are a lot of people that want to be involved in politics, that want to vote, that want to make a difference, and they genuinely don't know how. And the world feels so overwhelming these days for so many very valid reasons. And it can be difficult for people to make that jump, to figure out how to actually get involved. And I think one of the great privileges of my life is that around this time every year in September and October, People know that they can come out of the woodworks. It does not matter if you have not texted me since we were in high school. It doesn't matter that like, if you text me and ask me a question about the election, I will make sure that you get the information that you need, right? And there's something so heartening to me. It really is moving me that people trust me enough that this is a sacred obligation I believe that all of us have and that I have people in my life that would look to me for that information means a lot to me. And I take that responsibility really seriously. And I think people who get involved in politics in this way, it is infectious in that, because now I know that there are other people that are taking on that role too, right? That when we share information, we're also making it where our friends and family can share that with their friends and family, right? There are ripple effects. And this is how we actually make a difference. It could feel like that one phone call from your friend from college, like asking you how to find their polling location, maybe a waste of your five minutes, right? You know, sure, that could feel like something that maybe they can Google. But maybe if you give them that link, they're putting it in their group chats too. They're sharing it with on their social medias, right? And you don't know the reach that that information can have. And also that person feels a little bit more comfortable being involved in the process because you personalized it. You made sure that they felt welcome to this. And so many folks never feel welcome in our politics, never feel welcome into our elections. And so anything that we can do to spread that power, to share that information makes a big difference. Yeah, 
A hundred percent. It makes me think, well, like with this podcast, a big thing we want to do is amplify voices like your own and other guest experts that we bring on because we know that y'all are trusted resources so we can help amplify that message. And you never know who's going to stumble across a podcast. But I had a neighbor tell me the other day at a birthday party that they shared a podcast episode we did with Dr. Telly, the superintendent of our district, in this mom's kindergarten group. And they were like discussing it. And I was like, wow, that's really cool to know that. I don't know all those moms, but the fact that we are helping shape their thoughts on how the school really operates is nice that, ah, like this is touching people in a hopefully positive way. Because how else, yeah, you got to do it person by person. It is that personal touch that really can make a difference. But with that said, something that I want to touch on before we get into redistricting that you shared with us in your guest intake form was this project that you did when you were a student at UT called (laughs) A Republic If You Can Jeep It. So tell us a little bit about that because it made me stop and scratch my head and wonder what it was all about. (laughs) Yeah. So for my senior thesis in college, I decided I was not particularly interested in spending a lot of time in the library as that was not the thing that I loved. And I was really trying to think about what is it that I like about politics and voting and all these sorts of things. And at the core of it for me is really the people and getting to interact with so many people and try to understand very, very complicated people who we ask every day to make really complicated political decisions, right? It seems so simple, but when you actually start talking to people, nothing is very simple, right? And so I traveled 10,000 miles across the country in my burnt orange Jeep Wrangler. And I went coast to coast and border to border and would sit in coffee shops and bars and at Trump rallies and political meet and greets all over the country and just tried to have conversations with people about what politics meant to them, what democracy meant to them. And also, in sort of a meta way, having conversations about political conversations, right? Do people feel like they could talk to their friends and neighbors about politics? Because we really see there's some interesting theories about how our government is really set up to create discussion. And so if the discussion is not happening, is politics working? Like, is democracy working if the conversation Mm -hmm. itself cannot happen? And for so many reasons of polarization, the ways that we isolate ourselves, the tunnel vision and all the echo chambers in between, right? Like we are not very good at having the political conversation anymore. But what was so interesting is that many of those same folks who said they couldn't have that conversation with their friends or family were very comfortable having it with this me as a stranger. They wanted an outlet to speak about politics. They wanted someone to know how they felt about what was going on, even if they didn't feel like they could tell their friends. And there's something in there about where we are as a country right now and how the needs that people have to be heard and the ways that I think we are kind of siphoning that off. It was very interesting, an absolutely like life-changing couple of months of really, truly getting in and just having those difficult conversations with people. Well, you just alluded, I think, to one of what it sounds like one of your big conclusions was if you had like kind of a top three things that you took away from that project, what would they be? Excellent question. I think in part one, people are absolutely more complicated than we'll like ever give them credit for, right? It is having a like real broad conversation about people's politics. Anybody at any education level of any political party will bring up logical things that do not match up, right? Things that contradict one another, parts of yourself that come from your identity, from your place, from your family tradition that don't match up with where you are today, right? There are really complicated things going on in people's heads about how they make those political decisions. And I think we don't always give a lot of space for how complicated that is and for the ways that people are trying to make those decisions, even kind of below the surface level, right? Like not even logically always. I think that was a big part of what I saw. I think there were some also really interesting things about attending Trump rallies and attending some political events and really having conversations with some folks really across the aisle. Not just our moderate across the aisle, but some like really, really across the aisle things. And in part one, there were many people that I live blogged this trip We had engagement on social. People, I think, felt engaged in the conversations that I was having as well, right? And there were also the people that were 
not very happy that I was going to Trump rallies and that I was trying to have conversations with these folks or in part elevating their voices and their perspectives, of which there were many problematic things in their voices and in their perspectives that they were providing. But for me, as a practitioner of this work, right, someone who is actually trying to pass policies and to connect with voters every day, I also found that there are not very many people that actually work in politics that have access to voters that they do not agree with or that are ever really engaging seriously with voters that are not of the base that they are mobilizing, right? Even voters, people, humans, friends, whatever, right? And it even well intentionally, we other people by doing that, right? We dehumanize people by doing that. And this is, again, a system built on everyday people, and that has to value their humanity, even when they're making illogical decisions, even when they are making decisions not against their interest or anyone's interest, right? Like, there is a human nature to that that I think sometimes we lose. And we reduced it to education or that we don't agree with them. So there's something wrong with them, right? And instead of thinking about like how people are making decisions or like what in people's lives have led them. And I try to not say this in some overly sympathetic way, right? Like there are real ramifications for making voting against people's interest. Like we voted against people's humanities and people are losing rights. I'm very well aware of the very real life implications that this has for people. But I also think that so much of what we do is like gamify the system and put it into polls and we put it into all these things that voters become numbers in a polls instead of like individuals making decisions. That is so often what we do. And in the conversations that I had with so many people, they feel that. They do not feel the autonomy of their vote. They feel like they are part of this mass thing. And I think that has a lot of problems that we're already seeing, but I think that only grows as this kind of media landscape pushes that even further. That was a lot of thoughts. That was a long trip. Yeah, no, those are great (laughs) thoughts. One thing I'll add that I heard just from your summary of the Republic, if you can jeep it, was it sounds like there's a big appetite to talk about these political things and people don't have Mm -hmm. an outlet. So they're willing to talk to a stranger. (laughs) You know what they thought. Yeah. And it's like, how do we open Uh, up room for that? How do we build spaces for that? And to meet people that do not agree with you, right? Like in real ways, not mm -hmm. in like, oh, we're going to have one dinner once a year where we like talk with someone again, you know? And the thing is, it has to be non-political. It has to be that we are in communities that are of diverse interest and diverse lived experiences and all these sorts of things. Like we, in part, what we can talk about with redistricting today too, there is a huge shift in folks over the past several decades, basically consolidating political power like themselves. Like there is not much diversity of political thought in your zip code compared to 20 to 30 years ago, right? Like there are ways in which even that is changing. And there's obviously a ton of things demographically that move into that redistricting, forcing that in certain circumstances as well. But also we have a natural bias to want to be people, like be near people who have our lived experiences, have share our values, those sorts of things too. And there are many, many, many benefits to that. But one of the great drawbacks is that your neighbor likely does not have a different political view than you in the same way that they may have 30 years ago, which means you're not having to go to their kid's birthday party and have a civil discussion that then turns into a political discussion. Instead, we are only having that political discussion and then trying to put humanity back onto it instead of having those human experiences with folks And then the politics and lived experience, you know, that part of it being secondary, it has to, in part, be upfront because we are not connected to one another. Yeah. Well, we also believe that. I'm going to have to think on that one, Charlie. I want to think through that kind of order that you've just (laughs) just thrown out there. That's really interesting. Sorry. Yeah. Well, I was going to say we also. I don't want to derail. Keep it going, Claire. Oh, it's okay. Well, that we think like curiosity begets curiosity. Yeah. 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 But it's hard because it's like you have to train yourself to ask these questions in a way that opens up curiosity and dialogue. And we don't really do that. Or I guess if we do, we're talking about we're on the same page. So we're like, okay, moving on. But yeah, we want to grow, right? So we're going to have to get a little uncomfortable with this. And that's okay because something better will come out of it. And I think on that same note, just before we switch to redistricting too, but 
a lot of what we were talking about was civility and politics, right? Like how that goes into your ability to have those political conversations. And one of my favorite things that I found while doing the research for the trip is the researcher out of Oxford who writes about civility and really writes about how we need to shift how we understand civility. Because I think so often mm-hmm. when we're talking about civility in politics, we're saying that person needs to stop yelling at me, right? Like that person needs to like tone it down. Those people over there need to get it together and be able to have a civil discussion with me before I'm willing to engage, right? And one, there's always a power structure involved in that. Who gets to decide what's civil and what's not civil? And what we have seen forever is that rules of civility are used against women and people of color to silence them and say that the ways that they express themselves do not fit into what we think is civil. That is used to silence people. And so what this researcher talks about is that we have to shift our idea of civility to be about us and about our own ability to stay in the conversation, our own commitment to stay in the conversation. That it does not matter what you say about your politics to me, I'm going to be there to engage with you on it. That if you are willing to come to the table, and even if I don't agree with anything you're saying, it is about me and my ability to do that. I think there are lots of factors that fit into this. There are some ways in which political conversation can be actively dangerous to folks. And I think that is a real thing, as I know as a queer person in Texas, right? Like, there are sometimes where you're like, okay, we're going to tap the brakes on this before we go any further. Like, absolutely, right? But I think just starting to think about what that means, that stop putting the onus of civility on other people and like, what are we doing to ourselves to make our own commitments to stay in this, to have those difficult conversations, to have things said, right? Like, what is our own engagement level that we're willing to commit with? And how do we fortify ourselves to have those conversations? But that's just something that I think a lot about, even if there's not a great answer to how to do it. Yeah, absolutely. That just radically changed my thinking. Yeah. You said that's an article that you might have to share that with us. I can send it over. Yeah. We can add it to our show notes. I want to read it. From my thesis. I'll go go look it up. (laughs) Perfect. Yes. Just a side note. This makes me think about Robert's rules of order. And I have a serious beef with that, the civility of it. But it is what we have, unfortunately. So that's for another day. <laughs> Bring me back. We can talk about civility and <laughs> politics all day on episode two. Uh, yeah, part two. But for this episode, we did want to get into redistricting. And this is our election series. And we're helping people understand elections is so much bigger than just voting. It's the mechanics of voting and these rules that are in place that affect the vote that you're going to cast. So can you just tell us what is redistricting and also what is the difference between redistricting and gerrymandering? Because they do sort of live in the same space. Yeah. So redistricting is a process by which we're drawing all of the lines that determine what district we live in and then who we actually are going to vote for. So when you're registering to vote, you're putting that address and you put that address because where you live matters for who actually represents you. And we often think about this in Congress. I think that's where a lot of the gerrymandering and redistricting conversation happens. But this is happening at basically every level from your school board. There are redistricting lines drawn there, the state legislature, even the judges that are local to you. All of that is determined by where you live. And so somebody has to draw those lines. Somebody has to make the determination of who living where is going to vote for who. And so that is the redistricting process, the process by which we are drawing those lines. It always follows the census. So it's every 10 years after the census, which I think as we talk about redistricting this year is particularly important. We can talk about what a mess the census was in 2020 and how that affected redistricting. But it always follows that census process. That's to me when redistricting starts, is when we start sending those census forms out across the country. And then following that, state legislatures across the country then go in and are required to, using that census data, draw out the maps of how political power is divided. So I would say redistricting, gerrymandering often mean really the same thing. Gerrymandering is a bit of a more loaded term, I believe. I think it has a more negative connotation to it about the ways in which redistricting can be used for political power and to fortify political power. I think that is really where we get that kind of term from. It's based on 
a guy's name who was actually like Jerry. And I think it was actually Gary. And it should be gerrymandering, but that's a thing for another day. So to recap and make sure we're following you. So every 10 years we have the census. So populations are changing and that's why we have to redistrict is because we have to make sure there's somewhat of a balance across the board with different elected bodies, right? Like with your school board, state representatives, yeah, congressional representatives. But the people drawing these lines are the people in these positions, right? At least in Texas. Yes. And in most states around the country, state legislatures are doing this. Exactly right. Here in Texas, a state legislature who only meets every other year, as we know by now, this is one of their every 10-year projects as they have to come and do this redistricting fight because of those changes in population, changes in where people are moving, right? They have to try to balance all of that political power. So we have politicians make those decisions. We have politicians who are then on the ballot uh, that they determine by those redistricting. They get to make those decisions. And obviously, that arrays a lot of problems arise from people being able to pick their voters instead of having voters pick them, which is how we all basically understand a democracy to work. So how is this allowed? That seems suspicious. (laughs) Or what You're isn't not allowed? Wrong. <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> there are a lot of highly suspicious aspects of this, and you would be genuinely surprised how much of it occurs behind closed doors. That it is literally backroom deals being made about some of the most substantial things. Because, as you said, this is an every 10 year process. So, this determines a balance of political power in the state for a decade. A lot can happen in a decade. The population in Texas over the past 10 years has skyrocketed, right? And one of the things that we see these changes in the past 10 years is that 95% of the growth in Texas came from communities of color. If we had a system that worked, that would mean that 95% of the changes in political power would be centered around people of color. That is not what happens in Texas, right? Because we have folks drawing these lines that are interested in their own power and holding on to their own offices rather than making sure that every Texan is adequately represented, we have a broken system. We have a system that does not actually work for the voters. It only works for the politicians. This makes it where we have a state that doesn't work. In many circumstances, it makes it where we don't really have a democracy that we cannot take action on issues that people care about because they are not actually being represented by the people that sit in those offices. Well, and then it's real easy, of course, to draw a line to the apathy when we start looking at the numbers of people who vote and the people who decide to sit out. So I'm curious, this is a question that we also asked of well, gosh, Claire, I guess we asked it of Pam Bixby from the League of Women Voters, and we asked it of Emily Eby from the Texas Civil Rights Project, which is like, how do you justify the ways that these decisions are currently being made? Like, how do you make that case? Or is it that you don't have to make the case to the public for why you've done what you've done? Does that make sense? The people drawing the maps, you mean? The people drawing the maps, excuse me, yes. Like the people in power who are making these choices. I'm just trying to wrap my mind around how you sort of are your own PR people for how that is fair and how that makes sense. Or do you just not do that? You would be surprised by how little they actually defend what they're doing, (laughs) particularly as it comes to redistricting, which basically the Texas maps for the past several decades have been under litigation because they have had a disproportionate negative effect on diluting the political power of people of color in Texas. That's been going on for a long time, right? So we have a legal system that is saying, this thing you are doing is literally breaking the law. This is violating the Constitution. And still, there is a disconnect between that and the voters. That, in part, this is such a wonky system that I think for many Americans— you have no idea how those lines are drawn, right? Like you register to vote, you get the thing, you say, these are the 10 people that are going to be on your ballot, and we accept that. And part of what I think, what is critical about the work that we do is helping people poke holes in all of this. 
even registering to vote, right? We accept registering to vote as just a concept. That is fine. And it was a completely made up concept to keep people from voting. Voter registration is a tool of voter suppression. But we live in a system where we have to, right now, we have to register to vote. So eventually we can hold power and tear down that system. And I think redistricting follows these same things, that this is a very broken system that we know dilutes political power. But when we're talking about that apathy, and you're absolutely correct, right, this is one of the things that it can make you feel hopeless to really look at sometimes how popular policies aren't passed. Let's just talk about gun violence prevention, right? Take something like background checks that the vast majority of Americans support. But we have maps drawn in Texas that fortify people's power, and it makes it where they don't have to win in a general election. They need to win in a primary because they have drawn that district in such a way in which someone from their party is always going to win that primary. What that does, and then that says, half of the voters, you do not matter to me anymore. Goodbye. If the people I need to speak to to get elected are only showing up in political primaries, those are the people that I'm going to speak to. That discounts the voices of the vast majority of people. So we are now dealing instead with not even half the population, not even half the voters. We are dealing with a microcosm of the electorate who shows up to vote in primaries. That then becomes, on both sides, really the most committed people, I think. And particularly as we see on this gun violence issue, we'll say particularly, right, like on a Republican primary in Texas, those folks are skewing much older, much wider, much more affluent than the vast majority of the population. And so we have politicians that are only catering to this very narrow subset of the population instead of the vast majority of us who support reasonable things like background checks. This is how redistricting really stops popular policies from getting passed. And it is radicalizing our politics. So then we have politicians who only want to be primary champions instead of people who are trying to get votes from all walks of life, from all parts of your community, which then you actually get real solutions because you have to go out and you have to earn it. And I think when we think about the impact of this as well, right, that really earning it, part of what happens in this redistricting is that we get these insane districts that stretch for hours across Texas, and there's no shared life experience or resources or anything between folks that can live in the same, say, congressional district. And you have folks that then would say maybe represented part of Austin and are a Republican congressperson. They're not coming to Austin. They haven't been to Austin in years. And they really do not consider the people who live here that do not vote for them in the general election to be of concern to them. And that has those policy problems, but it also, right, like a Congress office is supposed to support you on a great deal of things, right, of like getting your passport and all these sorts of things. And if you have people who really do not care about you and your community, all of those functions start to break down. So you're talking about like the mechanics of drawing the map. And that makes me think of this expression I heard when I was at Annie's List training, which was cracking and packing. And I had never Uh really understood what that was. Can you explain to us what that looks like and how that is part of the gerrymandering machine? Absolutely. So essentially, we think about, again, as we were talking about earlier, right, there's kind of folks we like congregate in communities that are similar to one another. And so cracking and packing is how we end up with these crazily drawn districts that look like all sorts of number of things, that there's lots of great internet content around how dumb all these districts are shaped, right? And it's because what they're trying to do is either crack and split a community apart to dilute their power. The best example I have of this is for years, I lived in Austin, worked with a lot of students in Austin. UT students in Austin could live in essentially five different congressional districts. What they did is they took a community that actually really lives quite close to one another around a campus, and it was very clear that in a city like Austin, these young voters, that they have a particular political persuasion. And so lines are very carefully drawn to crack that community apart and to make it where no one representative has to actually represent the students. If just a few students live in every district, 
there's nobody that actually has to be responsive to the students, right? Because it makes it where those students are not the determining voters in any single one of those elections. Conversely, packing, you can do a similar thing. So take in community somewhere in Dallas, right? Like it actually might be that if there are so many Black and Latinx voters in particular neighborhoods that they could influence multiple elections, sometimes what they'll do is actually just draw a crazy district that puts all those folks in one district, gives them a safe spot, just one, when they actually probably could have influenced several different elections, right, and had enough power in numbers to actually influence a great deal and are all put into one place. So that's a little bit of how that cracking and packing works and how we get all these very wonkily drawn lines, because there are people's job who it is to go by neighborhood by neighborhood, determine what kind of folks live in those neighborhoods, what their political persuasion could be, not just now, but in years from now, and are going street by street to try and draw those lines to have them be essentially to fortify power for the folks that are in charge, right? In Texas right now, that's the Republican Party. So they are doing everything that they can to, as carefully as possible, craft that to hold on to that power. And essentially, they have, in many senses in Texas right now, made it where there are very few competitive seats. There are seats that Democrats are going to win. There are a certain amount that Democrats are going to win, and there are a certain amount that Republicans are going to win. Generally, we think about seats being like up for grabs, right? Like every election should be a competitive election. That is not how this actually, the reality that we have very few elections in Texas right now that are up for grabs even. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) My brain hurts. (laughs) (laughs) It does a little bit break your brain. (laughs) My brain is breaking, not was, right? It is breaking. And what it is is that I want our podcast to be super accessible, right? For somebody who maybe is a little bit of political dabbler to somebody who this is new territory for them. And so what I'm thinking the whole time as I'm listening to you, like, Charlie, you're making it so it's easy to understand, but at the same time, it feels also like impossible to understand. You know what I mean? And I think part of that for me is that, well, I don't want to accuse that this is intentional, but here I go. I'm about to accuse that this is intentional, that these systems that are invisible have such a deep effect on the ways that people can feel empowered to engage and that this issue in particular, redistricting slash gerrymandering is one of those that is incredibly disempowering, invisible, frustrating. And it's like, I want to make sure that somebody who's listening hasn't tuned out at this point, who isn't just like, oh my God, I do not understand all this stuff. Forget it. It's just frustrating. I'm out. Yeah. Well, I feel like there's so much that's broken. Like, the redistricting process is broken. Just even voting mm-hmm. in Texas feels very broken. It's like, where do you even start the census? To fix before this? Any of the it. census. How like no money was put into the census in Texas. And I just keep thinking, Stop. okay, where do you start? I'm like, oh my God. It's like you walk into a house that's just like covered in filth and you just walk right out because you're like, I can't. This is too much. Until you get yeah, your friends and, and then I mean, you do it together. <laughs> and honestly, this is one of the things that as someone that does this work, like these are the conversations we're having with each other every day. This is difficult work to sustain in a state like Texas because there are so many obstacles that stand in front of us. But what I try to remind myself and what I try to remind everyone is that every single vote matters. And I don't say that in the way that a lot of people say that. I don't mean that in that one single vote is going to determine every election. What I mean is that every single time we register someone to vote, every single time that person shows up, they are taking a little bit of autonomy over their own life. In a world that is very confusing, and in a political system that seeks to confuse us and seeks to silence us, every single time someone shows up and says, I get to have a say in this, and that my lived experience matters, that my family's lives matter, and that we get to determine the future. Even if we do not win, showing up every single time and taking that little bit of ownership over the future matters to your own well-being, and it matters to your community. And even when all of these obstacles, even if we lost elections for another 100 years, which we won't, 
But even if we did, every single person that we registered mattered because that is how we help someone seize their power. And I know that changes someone's life regardless of who wins or loses an election. You cannot take that sort of power away from someone when you help them realize the impact that they can have, when you help them realize their place in a community, the ownership that they have over a community, that is always going to matter. And so even when these processes are wonky, and they are, right, both redistricting and the legislative process in general always have portions that are open to the public. And one of the ways that we help is by showing up. And we show up and we speak out. And it is not always easy to do this, right? And like Texas makes it intentionally difficult to do this as well, that you really got to be in person in Austin at a specific time and date when these hearings are to like be counted in certain ways. But I always feel so motivated. So many of the voting rights specific hearings that we had last year, I think almost all of them lasted longer than 24 hours straight. And so that means you are showing up to the Capitol at six or seven in the morning. And for those of us that can, staying until they call your name so you can give your two minutes. And that is not a process that works for everyone, obviously, particularly working people, hourly employees, all sorts of things. But we show up for the folks that can't be there because there are so many people that can't make their way down to Austin, that can't take off time work to do that. And we go and we try to tell their stories and we try to confront these elected officials with the reality of what they are doing. And not just the political reality of what they're doing, how it actually impacts people's lives to try to silence them, to try to tell them that their votes and their lived experiences don't matter. We confront them with that information. And I think that always matters. And we can talk about the specific ways, right? Like, also, that ends up in legal cases that people showed up and they shared their stories and that these lawmakers ignored them. They ignored the actual people that lived mm-hmm. here. Instead, they listened to the special interest groups and all these things. That ends up in legal records, too, that this can have very, there are good and powerful feelings that can come with this. There are also very real legal implications that happen every time we cast that ballot, every time we show up. It always matters. Even if we do not win the fight, we are going to win the war because we keep showing up and we're bringing more people with us every time that we do it. And I know this gets demoralizing because I am demoralized a lot of the time, but I think it's incumbent on us to remind ourselves, to remind each other when it does get tough and it will get tough again, that we lean on each other, that this is something that we do together. We can overcome gerrymandering by showing up in such high numbers of turnout that you screw up all the plans that they made. They are banking on very few Texans showing up in these elections. If we fundamentally change the electorate, it doesn't matter how they read through those districts, right? We can overcome these things if we really work together, if we try to understand the systems so we can break them down. We can't allow ourselves to get overwhelmed by the minutiae of it, by the bullshit of the whole thing. They want us to do that. They are trying to confuse us out of action. And everything that we can do to break down those barriers is going to make a big difference. Well, thank you for saying that. That very much answered a question that we had, which was how can ordinary Texans get more involved? And I think it is good to remind people that you should vote in every election you can make it to because every election is going to impact you somehow. So have your voice heard. And if you can do more, do more. But just some action is better than no action. So where do you think we need to focus our attention to ensure that democracy is protected because it seems like these schemes are undermining democracy and undermining our confidence in the system that we have. There's a couple of things here. And one is on a meta level. You are absolutely correct. What they are trying to do is undermine our confidence. I will not allow them to undermine my confidence in our system. And it's important to me that we have that conversation with our friends and our families. And we talk to them about why we register to vote. We talk to them about why we show up. Even in the midst of all of these people trying to cast dispersions on what is going to happen and how this democracy works, our trust in the system is the single thing keeping the system going. I think if anything of the Trump years have shown us anything, is that the institutions are not as stable as you think they are. There are not as many legal guardrails as you thought there were. 
And what we have is our trust in the system and our belief that if we show up, our votes will be counted. And that more importantly, whoever loses will (laughs) concede the election. There is a lot of that. And part of that is on all of us. That is about ourselves and what we do, what we talk about. Because in part, we have a lot of loud voices casting aspersions on the election, putting conspiracy theories on top of the election. And we, in part, need validators for democracy. We need people who believe in it and who love it and are going to go out there and talk about it and why it matters, because we can't let people lose faith completely in this system, right? That is part of it. That's something that all of us can do. And I think, to me, that starts with having just conversations about why we show up ourselves and actually asking our friends, like, are you registered to vote? Like, I'm registered. Like, can I help you? Like, here's why I'm registered this year. I think it's really important that we show up. I think another way that is really important this year in particular for folks who want to take that next step is showing up and being a poll worker. What we are seeing across the country is that there is a concerted effort to put election deniers into actual elections offices, in part because we've scared out so many people from being election officials with the fear-mongering and the conspiracy theories. But also COVID had a real impact on this too, that Really, the vast majority of folks that work the polls are over the age of 65 and were those who are the most at risk of COVID. And we saw a great wave of young people stepping up in 2020. Thousands of young people stepped up and served as poll workers for the first time. We need to continue that. Democracy only works when everyday people show up. And the mechanisms of voting only work with everyday people showing up. And we want to make sure that the right people are in there who really value our democracy, that value ensuring that every vote is counted. We want to make sure that there are people in those rooms to make sure that that's possible. And anybody can serve as a poll worker. And I think that's a great way to take the next step into getting involved. Nicole and I were at TribFest recently, and we heard this panel about redistricting and gerrymandering. And one of the speakers, Michael Lee, was talking about this story where there was a man, I don't know if it was like an Arizona somewhere in the Southwest who was like, I'm going to be a poll worker to prove how easy it is to cheat. And then when he was going through the training, he was like, actually, this is really hard. (laughs) Like He had this awakening like, yeah, I thought you could steal elections, but turns out you can't. Or if you wanted to, you have to be quite the schemer because the way the system set up is pretty good. (laughs) Believe it or not. Yeah. So that was which in all the ways we can restore the least efficient way. (laughs) Yeah, it was great. Nicole, do you have any final thoughts? kicking around. Oh god, I just had one but it escaped. We'll see if it comes back. Well, let's just keep moving forward. I'm saying that slowly seeing if it jumps back in my head, but I don't <laughs> think it's going to. So, yes, let's keep going. Well, one more thing I wanted to touch on before we move to our last segment was there has been some momentum for a national bills to be changed so that our elections are streamlined and they're not so state by state based, like with the redistricting process and with our voting processes. Where's that at? Do we have any hope in the federal government saving us? We have some hope. So we have the Voting Rights Act, which a lot of the scrutiny that redistricting comes under is from that 1960s Voting Rights Act that was passed by LBJ and really set into place a lot of the standards around the drawing of these districts. So that was gutted in part by the Supreme Court in 2013. That took away some of the protections we had for preclearance in states that had a long history of racist voter suppression, like Texas, that make it where you had to have a lot of things approved by the Department of Justice as it pertains to like changes in election law. There are still parts of the Voting Rights Act that are very intact and help to protect us in a lot of different ways. So there is that piece of legislation. There's also the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, which seeks to kind of draw out what was gutted from the Supreme Court and recodify that in a way that would stand up against that legal scrutiny. That would do a great deal to move things forward and provide these protections. And there's also the Freedom to Vote Act. And so both of these gained a lot of momentum last year, particularly in in part because of the work that was happening in Texas by advocates, by the work that was happening from our lawmakers to raise the voter suppression fight to a national fight and try to push for those national standards to prevent what was happening in Texas. They were not able to do it last summer in time to kind of stop what was happening in Texas. But I do have hope 
that this is something that's, I think, still very top of mind for folks. I think the threats to democracy are becoming very real for people. As we see the rise of authoritarian governments across the world, as we see these attacks on freedoms happening, this voting rights fight only intensifies, I think, over the next several months. And so those pieces are still moving. I have a lot of hope that we are going to do something about it because we have to do something about it. And we have to make sure that we can not just throw out election systems at the whim of a radical state legislature, which is seeming to be a trend across the country right now. Yeah. Yes. I didn't realize that that's for the mechanisms. Yeah. Well, we just want to make a point. I mean, we're trying in our podcast to be just very pro-democracy, nonpartisan. You know, we don't want to like bash on a certain party. And with gerrymandering, I want us to just make it clear that very, very blue and very, very red districts are bad for everyone because a lot of these politicians will become very complacent and they won't have that urgency to get out and talk to the voters and make sure they have great constituent services because they can kind of take them for granted. So this is why everyone should perk up and be on alert because it's not good for us collectively. Yeah. It's just simply bad for democracy to make it where you are not responsive to the electorate or your community as a whole, but just a like very small fraction. That's bad for everyone. And not having competitive elections turn out lower. It makes people feel like they don't need to show up, that the outcome is already a given, right? All of these sorts of things erode our democracy for both parties that we really should be doing more to fortify right now. Exactly. Yeah. Well, once again, make sure you vote, folks. It is something you can do and it has a lot of power. So don't take it for granted. Now, before we let you go, Charlie, we're going to do our last segment, which is hopefully a fun way to send off the episode. But we like to do our attention mentions, which is where we just mention something that we can't stop thinking about. So like a TV show or a personal experience you had or an article Something along those lines. And I'm going to have to think for a minute. Do either of you have something top of mind? That's a good question. Are we allowed? I know I'm asking you the rules <laughs> and I get to help create the rules. <laughs> we make it up. <laughs> I want to mention something that I haven't done yet, but that I'm fired up to do, which I guess by the time this comes out, we'll see how hopefully I will have fulfilled this. I want to go see The Woman King and I want to take my daughter. I'm ready to like walk out of a theater feeling like I am woman, hear me roar. So I'm mentioning something that has my attention that I haven't yet done. So I'm like bending it all here. I've heard great things. I like that. Yes. Can you think of anything, Charlie? Okay. I have a song that I'm obsessed with right now that is just playing on a loop for me. It's by Jensen McRae, who's someone I wasn't familiar with before this, but I now can't stop listening to them. And it's a song called My Ego Dies at the End. And it's one of those, like, it makes you think, and then you just got to keep listening to it because you're really thinking about it. And so it's been a little mantra for me Ooh. the past c- couple of weeks. Tune in. Report back. Okay. okay. That's an intriguing or- title. Yeah. Like, I'm in. I'm going to go find that. We're going to listen. I will mention, (laughs) this is kind of funny. I don't know that I recommend this show, but if you have a couple hours and you're like, what should I watch? Eh, Check this one out. I recently watched Gaslit on Stars, which stars Mm -hmm. Julia Roberts about the Watergate scandal. She plays Martha Mitchell, who was the woman married to John Mitchell, the attorney general for Nixon. And I don't feel like I really ever fully understood Watergate until I saw this show. Because I thought it was this complicated thing that was like way above, I don't know, understanding. But then you watch it and you're like, oh, my God, these guys were idiots and their scheme was stupid. And it's a miracle that they got caught and went to jail because you think of the parallels between what's happening now and with Trump. and, And it's just like when I'm probably 30, 40 years from now, I'll be like, and that's the show. And now I get it. And wow, same story, different time, you know, history. Truly. So yeah, check all those things out. But thank you so much for your time, Charlie. This was a great conversation. I'm sure that Nicole and I are going to listen to this over and over and catch new things because there's a lot to stay on top of because it's complicated, but that's okay. We're smart. We can get it and we can make a difference. Yes. And there's nothing wrong with repetition. (laughs) 
Absolutely. And I think it's so important to remember the greatest lesson, I think, of working in this space of being in the Texas Capitol is that this place is not run by geniuses. Okay, listen, this is not some like criminal genius mastermind we're up against over here, right? Like in part, what they are relying on is us being disconnected and us being forced out of the system. And if we show up, if we really educate ourselves in this way that we really weren't growing up, right? If we educate ourselves and empower ourselves with information, we can fight back against this. We can do this. I know that we can do this together, particularly in a state like Texas. Thank you for saying that. Yes. Because I'll go to the Capitol and see them in their suits and their like nice styled hair. And I'm like, I don't know anything. And I'm like, wait a minute. I can hold my ground. Like I went to college too. So... You're right. We have to own our power and not cower because we can be strong just like they are. Yeah. All right. Thanks again. Absolutely. Thank you, everybody, for joining me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill on Go Behind the Ballot. Hopefully, we've demystified some little portion of Texas politics, and we hope that you'll do more with us. Check out our website at www.gobehindtheballot.com where you'll find links to all of our social media and you will find our community. Let's join together and do more. We hope you'll let us know what is working and we hope you'll join us next week. Thanks everybody and have a good one.